Hello and welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and we are coming at you today from our fancy studios at the Boston Public Library right across from the Newsfeed Cafe. You can hear them producing delicious specialty uh, beverages and foodstuffs as this conversation unfolds. With me, savoring those sounds, <laughs> as he often does, is my colleague Peter Kadzis of WGBH News. Peter, hello. Great to be here, Adam. And making his Scrum debut, which is very, very exciting for all of us, is Isaiah Thompson, WGBH News reporter. And should I append something else to your, your title? No, reporter is good. All right, Isaiah, thanks for being here. Wow, this is super exciting for me, too. We are going to be discussing in this episode the back and forth over the development at 115 Winthrop Square in the city of Boston, which, uh, as many of our listeners will know, has gotten a ton of attention lately. Isaiah's been covering this a lot. Peter, you have been paying close attention to this, and we're at the city council hearing where they decided to uh, sign off on this home rule petition that would allow the creation of this building if the state goes along with the plan. I covered this a bit earlier this year, um, but have not been paying as close attention to you guys of late, so I'm very glad you can fill me in on, on what's been happening. I want to start out by making sure that everyone, including myself, is clear on the specifics of the 115 Winthrop Square plan. As I understand it, this is a proposal to build a fancy new 700-plus-foot uh, tower, which is going to be built by Millennium, which has already done some uh, high-profile development here in the city of Boston, at the site that is currently occupied by this dumpy old parking garage that the city has owned for a long, long time and has been hoping to develop, um, going back to at least the Menino era, maybe even earlier. I'm not sure about that. Um, Peter, what are the big details that people should know about the proposal, starting with uh, the benefits that it is apparently going to be offering, monetary and otherwise, to the city? Well, <clears throat> the biggest benefit is the price tag, $153 million. Uh, that is a lot of money. Um, in addition, Millennium has pledged to um, in ensure that a large percent of of the people who work in the towers once they're built will be from um, from Boston, and an, another large percentage will be minorities. Um, that's also uh, similar arrangements have been made, promised for the construction itself. Um, no one. No one really denies that there's not huge benefits. Wait, no one really denies that there's not or that there are huge benefits? No, no one – there are huge benefits. Got Everyone it. agrees. I'll put it positively. Um, the, the, the mayor has committed funds uh, that would be spent on a whole range of projects, money for Franklin Park, um, money for affordable housing in Chinatown, for example. Those are those are just two. Um, the the benefits are very big. Money but, for the parks as well, right? Yes, money for the parks as well. Um, the question is, um, is it enough? Um, you, you know, some you know, I would agree with this. You know, would say that it's a hundred and fifty fifty three million dollar lost opportunity. The money's great, but. Um, 
the whole project hasn't been looked at very creatively. It's been a, a real simple, you know, here's the project. Wow, we're getting a lot of money. This is great. We can spend it on all these things. And by the way, all that's terrific. But think about the shadows. You know, it, it's going to cast a shadow on Boston Common. Um, uh, yes, the shadow disappears after what I think it is, 9.30 in the morning. Um, but there are other buildings in the city. Uh, for example, the um, Heritage opposite the Public Garden that pays every year a sort of shadow tax, if you will. Say, you know, well, isn't this sort of pinkies up, $153 million is a lot of money? Well, the building's up. The building's going to be there for, what, probably 100 years? Um, those shadows do damage to the park. I want to get Isaiah in here since you have been covering this very, very closely of late. Can you explain, because I actually struggled with this, it is so convoluted and almost esoteric when you look at these shadow laws. As I understand it, the Millennium Project is going to break not one but two laws involving shadow distribution on the common and the public garden. Am I right about that? You might be, right. but if you are, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I'm aware of one at least. Okay, uh, I, I, then hopefully. What's well, the I, same? It, it's the same law. Or it's two instances. It's the same law, and and these are laws that limit the amount of time that shadows cast by buildings in most part of the city, but not all of the city can cast on the common and the garden throughout the day. Right? They're supposed to only cast shadows very, very early in the day or toward the end of the day. Correct. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. See, what, what a lot of people have forgotten about, and that's because it was really a long time ago, Mort Zuckerman, uh, when he was active in real estate development in Boston, and Kevin White was mayor, proposed a massive um, uh, development called Park Plaza. And it, it, it caused near, the nearest thing to a civil war in, in Boston outside of busing. Um, Why were people so hot and bothered about that? Because the very idea of that sort of density in the huge shadows that would have been cast on the common and the garden um, w w was just considered anathema. It, it, Kevin White dug his heels in. Um, the law we're talking about today, uh, which Byron Rushing had a lot to do with, is a direct result of that failed... That, that failed plan to build um, Park, Plaza. Park Plaza. So when you say that this is a missed opportunity to think creatively about the issues that you mentioned, um, I'm not sure that I totally get what that creative thought process would look like that is not occurring in connection with this. So, so explain that to me. Well, the, the example I'm about to give... Um, is drawn from an idea of Rob Radloff, who wrote an op-ed style piece for WGBHnews.org. Now, um, Rob, just in the interests of full disclosure, was many years ago a trustee of WGBH, and many, many years before that was active on, on the board of um, Friends of the Public Garden. But he, he's now retired. He's been retired for many years. He was, interestingly enough, an institutional real estate investor. He invested tens of millions of dollars for pension funds in big real estate projects. So he's a capitalist, but he's an environmental-friendly capitalist. He came up with the idea 
and this is just one of them, there could be others, to, um, you know, create, a, you know, basically a, 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 a PED, a, 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 a district that would be, any time a park is going to be impacted by development, a special district would be set up, and in the instance of this Millennium Tower, you, you would um, arrange for the developers to pay mitigating payments, an ongoing tax, if you will, to help um, restore the damage that their building may inflict on the park. Does How that make sense? Would, I, I'm not sure. How would that be done in the case of a project like this? Because the damage that's going to be inflicted on the park is some extra shadows on the margins of the day. So how, well, how might that... Oh, Isaiah, you want to hop in here? Yeah, yeah, because part of what's been interesting and tortured in this, in this whole saga, right, is that most of the answers to how do we fix X problem, X problem mostly being the shadow, extra shadow, that will now be cast on our precious limited you know, public open spaces, potentially forever, even though it's only certain times of day and parts of the year. Um, and the answer is sort of, oh, well, uh, we'll make sure that the Friends of the Public Garden gets more money. And even though, and, and I think that part of what's been going on here is that um, on the one hand, the Friends of the Public Garden uh, are happy to get more money to spend on maintaining our you know, public garden. But on the other hand, you know, money isn't everything, is it? And um, I think that part of what was so tortured about this process is that, you know, there's money only goes so far, and I think that there was resistance to the idea that by simply asking this developer to pony up more money, more cash, that that would, you know, that that is equivalent to uh, uh, ameliorating right. the, the, the damage done by a shadow to a park. Let, let, let me explain Rob's idea a little more directly. A PED would be a park enrichment district. And in, in, if Boston were to adopt this idea, um, it would be the first in the nation to do so. The way it would work is that, let, let's take Winthrop Square, and I'm going to quote directly from his piece. If the projected, the projected shadows may exceed... What would be allowed under the existing shadow laws? However, if they exceed the guidelines, Winthrop Square would be required to pay directly to the Friends an annual maintenance fee. It would be equal to the total square footage of the project um, times $1.50, and then you adjust for inflation. This is what happens right now with Heritage on the Garden. For 25 years, every year, they make a payment of a couple of hundred thousand dollars to the Friends of the Public Garden, which is, for people who don't know, a not-for-profit uh, good citizens group that is solely dedicated to working to uh, maintain the common, the public garden, and the Commonwealth Ball. Does that clear it up a little bit? Yeah, it starts to, I think. And do, do you happen to know, not to get uh, too ingrained in minutiae here, but um, does that, or not to get too caught up in minutiae here, but does that, what was the, what's the name of the, the building that you say pays that? Oh, the Heritage. Or, yeah, are they in one of those districts in Boston where this law does not apply? Because the laws we're talking about, limiting shadow casting, do not apply to the entire city. 
So do you know if the Heritage is doing that? They, they are not part of the so-called shadow bank. Got the, it. Th this was, to the best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong, to the best of my knowledge, this was negotiated when they were planning, you, you know, 25 years ago when, when they started going up. Okay. Isaiah, had you wanted to hop in, I thought I saw you maybe waving, um, opening your mouth, looking like you were thinking a deep thought. If not, I have a question for okay. you. Okay. Yeah. All right, so my question for you is, um, you talked about the process, uh, the debate about this being torturous. Can you tell me how conflicted the members of the city council were as they went back and forth over whether to support this exemption to the city's uh, shadow laws or not? Yeah, and I think just to back up from that question for a second, you know, part of what I found to be very interesting and even, you know, important about this story, which I kind of came to thinking, oh, shit, building in a shadow, and is this really such a big deal? You know, so, so let's make a very quick timeline of what just happened, right? What happened was there is a big city-owned lot that everyone is unhappy with, and it's a big, ugly parking garage, and there's uniform agreement pretty much that something better could be there. Okay, so the council approves the city seeking uh, projects, putting out a, you know, a request for proposals. So they, okay, and they, they get a bunch of bids. They pick uh, the, the, BP, the BPDA, I should say, selects this one developer, Millennium Park. Everything's sort of going along fine. And then all of a sudden, it's announced, uh, it comes to the attention of the BPDA and then the city council. Oh, wait, there's a shadow problem that nobody ever mentioned before. And so now what you've got a surprise. Yeah. And and, you know, all these groups that really care about shadows on the park were very upset. And therefore, some of their representatives in city council were also upset. And, and, and I think that they were upset, not just because of the shadow itself, but because they should have known about that earlier. And uh, there was a real loss of trust in the you know, this is the the. The Redevelopment Authority was the BRA, now it's the BPDA, um, was sort of theoretically, you know, reformed by Mayor Walsh, kind of in the middle of this, right? And so you had, um, you know, you had this agency for which there was a fair amount of mistrust from the public and the city council, because they don't really control it, and it's very powerful, um, that was, you know, in theory reformed, but then all of a sudden the reformed entity says, oh, wait, we, we screwed up. We didn't realize that this is actually going to create a whole problem that we never told you about. I'm glad you mentioned that because to not only was the, the BPDA, uh, or I should say, not only was the Boston Redevelopment Authority recast as the, the BPDA, but the city council had to extend their urban renewal powers, right, which was controversial. And one of the reasons the city council went ahead and did that is that the BPDA uh, I guess it was still the, the BRA at that time, under the leadership of Brian Golden, embarked on a very intensive public relations campaign telling the council and the entire public, we're not the way we used to be. We don't do things unilaterally. We seek community input. We recognize mistakes we made in the past, like, for example, the raising of the West End. If you didn't trust us before, there's reason to trust us now. And then that's the context for that's this right. late-breaking revelation that you mentioned. A new day of transparency for this agency that then, you know, shortly thereafter says, oh, by the way, there's a, there's a huge problem that you're going to have with your constituents and that you might have morally, et cetera, with this project and, that and we never told you about. Let me suggest. Hold on just one second, Peter. Sorry. So given that, Isaiah, how sharp was the debate in the council itself 
over whether to sign off on this home rule petition. Right. So numerically, it was not sharp. You had an overwhelming uh, majority. You know, the, the vote approving this petition wound up being 10 to 3. So all but three city councilors voted for it. But, you know, I, I think those numbers belie, or maybe I'm using that word wrong. Don't believe I never remember how to <laughs> use that word. I think those numbers don't tell the full story because I think, you know, first of all, the three dissenters um, were Councilor President Michelle Wu. I think that's very significant to have the council president being one of the dissenting votes. Uh, Councilor, Council President Wu is a, a consensus builder, and she's someone who believes, I think, very strongly in trying to reach um, unity and as much consensus as possible in the council. And you reported she, she said that she had been misled or the council had been misled by the BPDA. Council President Wu was, was stopped just short of, um, well, let me, let me rephrase that. Yeah, Council President Wu had some very sharp questions for the BPDA about why, the, you know, why it only came to the council's attention after all this stuff was sort of almost approved that there was this shadow issue. She was not happy with her answers, which were sort of weird, right? They said, well, we didn't have the right software to find out if there was a shadow or not. I, and, um, and then after that hearing, I asked Councillor Wu directly, um, you know, Councillor, do you feel that you were misled? Because it sounded like that's what she was saying. And she said, yes. She, you know, she believes that the council was misled. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean intentionally, but that the council was misled by the BPDA, uh, you know, so about she makes the implications of this project. Who were the other dissenters? Other two dissenters were City Councilor Tito Jackson, who, of course, is running for mayor, um, and uh, City Councilor Josh Zakem, whose district includes the common. And of the 10 who backed this home rule petition to grant an exemption, how many of them seem deeply conflicted, if any? You know, well, most of the councilors, you know, most of the councilors were not. De- so you had a few councilors, the sponsor, uh, Councilor Bill uh, Linehan, and um, a couple other councillors who were, you know, very much in favor of it and spoke of the benefits and how that they felt this was a, a great thing for the city, and I think they really meant that. Most of the councillors were sort of not, around, you know, not part of this discussion. And then you had a couple other councillors, notably, uh, notably uh, Councillor um, Campbell and Councillor uh, Ayanna Presley, um, who were voted in favor of it, but also spoke at some length about... Um, the conflicting feelings they had between um, doing what they feel they need to do to raise money for their, the parks in their districts and, and, and for causes like affordable housing that they really care about, um, but also being, um, you know, also being mindful of holding the Walsh administration and this, you know, agency accountable, uh, which seemed to be a little bit at odds. They struck me as conflicted as well. Those were the two names I wrote down while you were speaking. Listen, let's let's give the city the benefit of the doubt for a moment. I'm pretty suspicious here, um, in part because um, City Councilor Wu, Pre- President Council Wu, is a, uh, a, a woman of a lot of integrity. She does not shoot from the hip. She does not uh, speak loosely. I mean, uh, uh, so I give what she has to say a lot of consideration. But let's look at the developer. Yes, Millennium is paying a lot of money. 
But Millennium's an expert on shadows. Why are they an expert in shadows? Because they own the shadow bank. The two other buildings, the the, the and 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 just Peter to build on it because it's such a like shadow bank. You know what that means is the shadow bank. Briefly, is basically the city said, well, the state law said, okay, no more shadows. Except we realize there's going to be exceptions, so we're going to carve out a certain amount of exceptions. That's the shadow bank. It's a bank of exceptions that developers can get. Three quarters of all those exceptions of all the shadows are used up already. And as Peter is pointing out, this is the point you're making, Peter, they're used up by the same developer. Right. So if, if there is an expert in shadows in the city of Boston, it's Millennium. So if Millennium's not to blame, if the, if, if the, the, the Boston development people aren't to blame, is Millennium, someone's not being straight with someone here. My recollection, having covered this a little while back, is that the simulation that revealed to the Boston Planning and Development Agency that, oh, there was going to be a shadow problem, was actually a simulation carried out by Millennium. I believe that's right. Carried out by the developer. Um, So maybe, I know money is tight in Boston, but it seems like it might be worth the BPDA's uh, time and resources to invest in software that oh, no, allow they, them to do this on their own, right? Oh, no, they have it now, apparently. Oh, they do have it. Now, now. they have it. Good. <laughs> but they see, didn't then. I mean, see, th- and I'm, I'm saying this with a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you know, such was the testimony of BPDA Director Brian Golden, and this was part of what frustrated uh, Council President Wu was, was, it's not to say that answer isn't true, that, oh, there's some software that for some reason we didn't have, but don't worry, now we have it for the future. Maybe that is true, but that's still, it's not a very satisfying answer. In the neighborhood I grew up in in Dorchester, that would be called very cute. Cute means not illegal, but someone else might call it chop practice. You know, this, from the mayor's point of view, um, an interesting interpretation has been lost here. The mayor is very interested in jobs for construction unions. The mayor is where he is in in a very large part because of the huge support he got from organized labor. Now, everyone, the mayor's not alone in wanting jobs for the city, but because two members of his administration are facing indictment um, uh, for uh, supposedly extorting a handful of union jobs, from a concert promoter, you don't hear City Hall really beating the drum as loudly as one might expect for the, 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 the jobs that will benefit you. But again, this is n- not a totally bad project. It has huge upside. Um, but it, there's a similarity here, very much like the Olympics and very much like Formula One, which is the proposals put forward, but the real public debate doesn't begin until it's essentially a done deal. Um, it, Millennium doesn't fit as neatly into that paradigm. And Adam, I have to credit you. You're the one who um, sort of turned me on to this way of looking at the, the mayor's big conceptual thinking, but it comes awfully darn close. The project is put out there, it's pretty much a done deal, and then the community input is solicited. And this time, it worked. So, 
isn't this home rule petition, if it passes on Beacon Hill, isn't it going to end or limit some of the loopholes that can be used in the future in subsequent developments to, uh, to, to get around restrictions on shadow casting on the common and garden? And isn't that a, a victory worth mentioning here? Maybe Victory so. Park advocates, I should say, uh, unless you ex unless you seek exceptions to those. Yeah, yeah. Peter is exactly right, and yeah, maybe it's a victory, and certainly that is the case that the you know administration, the Walsh administration, and the BPDA are ma were making to council. So yeah, so technically, here's what happens: if they pass this, they're going to cl close the shadow bank. So this bank of exceptions, this pool of exceptions that are sort of floating out there, available, will be closed. So in theory, that means, okay, no more shadows after this one. But, you know, here's the thing with that. Another way of looking at that is, okay, you have this pool of exceptions that's all been used by one developer. That same developer is now going to break or get around the laws preventing more shadows. And in exchange, they'll say no more shadows. I mean, so it's sort of... Like well, and what's very interesting is uh, um, a, a person I hold in, in very high regard is Sam Tyler, the head of the Boston Municipal Research Bureau. He and Michelle Wu are two people of huge integrity. Now, the Municipal Research Bureau is funded by big downtown corporations. Sam Tyler testified very eloquently very precisely, as is his... As is his want. As yes. is his want. Um, and he said the Municipal Research Bureau was, you know, generally in favor, but he had problems with a lot of the exceptions. I, I mean, huh. it, 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 look, it, and, and that doesn't mean the exceptions are bad. Um, it's a very complicated issue. But it does show that you know the single entity that holds the sit you know good government interest in the one hand um, from a from a business point of view you know thinks that the exceptions there's the you know the, 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 the that that the improvements are themselves suspect all i'm saying is it's very complicated let me boil this down to a simple sentence the deal was done before all the facts were known that is what's that is the heart of the matter, and that's why what should have been a triumph is now severely tarnished. Although the deal, the deal, you're right, the deal was put together, but it wasn't done because to be done, council had to pass it, and that was a decision that council members had the ability to make and chose to pass it. And and I think that part of part of why this was a, a uh, a, a more important story than perhaps the sum of its parts, not to diss the parts. I know people really care <laughs> about the, the common and, you know, that's, uh, but it is, is that, you know, what was, what I think, especially Councillor President Wu was trying to get at was, okay, so, you know, they came to council, which they need to do, and they presented X, Y, and Z, and council sort of gave them the go ahead. And then they said, oh, wait, you know, we messed up now. It's a totally different thing. Um, and, you know, the most direct question Council President Wu asked Brian Golden, the director of the BPDA, is she said, well, wait a minute. You know, if you're saying, well, yeah, we should have done it better. We made a mistake. But, you know, now we know. And she said, well, now we know. So why don't we go back? You know, why, why do we have to pass this? Why don't we start over? Bring it back to us. And um, the implicit answer sort of seemed to be, well, n nobody has the appetite to actually 
go back and bring this back before council in some way. And, uh, and I think that what she was getting at is that council's role as a watchdog and as a steward of the city's finances and the city's resources um, is important. And, and, and they were being asked to kind of uh, look the other way. What it comes down to is the council, whether intentionally or unintentionally, was hoodwinked. That's really what it comes down to. Remember the great Watergate question. Who knew what and when did they know it? That is applicable here. And it's really too bad that, that, that you, you, you know, all the pluses of this project are shadowed, if you will, you know, by the lack of transparency. It took me like five seconds to get that. I apologize. <laughs> no, yeah. You, you know, um, this was not a transparent deal for whatever reason. Isaiah, I got to ask you, this is, I think, the penultimate question. Sure. Uh, you're referring to council as opposed to the council or the city council is a mm. reminder to me that you have been an itinerant reporter. You have reported from other big metro areas. Were you most recently in Philadelphia? Are you calling me a hobo? <laughs> <laughs> I most certainly is am this, not. This, you did so very politely. Uh, yes, I, no, I, that, that is correct. And have I been saying council funny? Is that a weird thing here? Yeah, well, I just think Maybe they know, don't Peter say, yeah. said, you know, the council was hoodwinked. And you, I think, have said things like council had a chance. Well, but I, I actually have a bigger point or question here that I think I'm trying to get to, which is how would a, a proposal like this, uh, particularly with the late reveal of some important information, how would something like this have played out in Philadelphia? Yeah, so, yes, I did move uh, to Boston from Philadelphia, and I covered uh, the city administration and the Boston, uh, Philadelphia City Council for, you know, about seven years. Um, you know, and it's very interesting to me to watch this because um, the dynamics of Philadelphia City Council and the, you know, the, the mayoral administration in Philadelphia um, are, are fairly different even though, as far as I can make out, the, the powers are actually ostensibly about the same. So when I, when I moved to Boston, people kept saying, oh, city council, Boston city council doesn't really have any power. And, and I kept saying, well, no, it has exactly the same powers that the Philadelphia city council had. And the Philadelphia city council president has historically been, you know, at times as powerful, in some ways at least, as the mayor. Huh. And has been a serious, and the council has traditionally been a serious check on the mayor. That's probably why I say the council, because it's sort of more of a, you know, a, a, a force to be reckoned with in Philadelphia. Um, so I'm rambling, but your question was, how would yeah, this have so, been different? So in, in Philadelphia, and this is, I know, uh, a bit of a thought experiment, but let's say that there was a big new project plan that the mayor was totally behind and that late in the process it was revealed that it was in some way going to break some law involving the city or some you know, fairly important regulation involving new development. Uh, do you think the outcome would have been the same as what we saw here? Um, not if that district council person didn't want it. So one, one difference, and I don't, know, I don't know that it's a huge difference, but district council members in Philadelphia, in other words, council members who represent a specific area rather than at large, um, are given tremendous deference by their colleagues and generally by the mayor. There's a, there, it's, it's very territorial. Putting that aside, though, 
you know, I was trying to think through, no, I, I think that if there was an appetite to fight the mayor in Philadelphia on a project like this, or, or the re Philadelphia's Redevelopment Authority, which is structured similarly, there would have been a bigger fight. And I was trying to think, well, why is that? Is it because they have some power that Boston councilors don't? And no, I mean, the answer is that because everyone knows that they'd probably be willing to vote no on things. So the big difference that I see is that in Boston, it seems that councilors generally vote yes, but they don't have to. They can vote no. And I'm not saying they should vote one way or another. But in Philadelphia, they exercise that no vote a lot more and mayors take notice. One other very important difference that I want to point out is that mayors in Philadelphia are term limited and city councilors are not. Now, we don't have term limits here. That's so a it's a very big difference. difference. Yeah. I mean, in Boston, I get it. The mayor that you might try to buck could be there forever. Philadelphia, a city councilor can, can wait a mayor out if they have to. Uh, very interesting. Peter Kadzis, I want to give you the last word on a claim that Brian Golden, the head of the BPDA, made to me when I interviewed him back in February about this project. Uh, I asked him about the concern voiced by people like Liz Visa, the head of the Friends of the Public Garden, and other advocates who say, you know, if you give this exemption once, what's to stop the city from giving similar exemptions ad infinitum down the road. And what Brian Golden said to me was, this is a once in a generation development opportunity. The city has not sought exemptions like this in the last 25 years. There's no reason to think we'll do it in the next 25. This is such a good deal. We're not gonna see anything like this uh, again anytime soon. It's a huge political endeavor to get this exemption. It's a huge headache. Put all those things together, and people don't need to be worried about this happening in five years or three years. What do you think of that? I do think this is a not once-in-a-lifetime, but it is a once-in-a-decade opportunity. So I buy, I buy, I'm convinced. I willingly accept that part of what he said. The trouble is that... When he said it, there wasn't, um, you, you know, the questions about the shadows, I don't think, were known then. No, were they, they were. They, they were. weren't. And they were. Oh, they were. They oh, were. okay. Well, that still doesn't change it. The perception after watching him testify, and I have to say, smart guy, he was by far um, the smoothest and the smartest. Barrows was very good, too. Golden's very sharp. But Golden was very impressive. You know, if he were a lawyer and I was uh, a mass murderer, I'd want Golden <laughs> as, my, as, as my advocate. Um, but after watching all that, well, no, I have to say, it is, hands down, most likely a once-in-a-generation opportunity. The problem is that because uh, either someone wasn't, isn't playing straight here, whether it's Millennium or whether it's the city of Boston. Um, it calls into my question, and I'm a taxpayer, I'm a, a resident of the city of Boston, um, will I trust people to be straight again? There's so much money at stake here, huge, huge profits, that um, it leaves me with a big question mark, and it leaves a lot of people, even people who are going to say, well, I'm glad, you, you, you know, there's going to be a, 
a, a bitter aftertaste for a long time. By the way, let me close. We haven't talked about what's going to happen when it goes to the State House. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I think it's going to be pretty straightforward. The process goes something like this that the mayor picks a member of the legislature to introduce the home rule petition. That member will most likely uh, put a preamble on it saying that this is being introduced with the understanding that it not be amended. Now, the legislature is sovereign, so the legislature can amend whatever it wants. What are the odds of this home rule petition being amended? I think they're slim. First of all, organized labor has a lot of muscle up there. I, so I, I think they're slim. The only person, I think, who might have the stomach for a fight like that... Um, uh, State Representative Byron Russian. Thank Russian, you. You right? saw my mind freeze up. Maybe Byron Russian, who wrote the original legislation. But even there, he has to weigh the economic benefits. The creator of the, of the he, shadow banks. He bank created the shadow banks. So he well, has a vested created. interest. I would keep my eyes on Byron Rushing, but um, he too will come under a lot of intense pressure. And e- even though he's a, a Boston and a Roxbury representative, um, y- you have to look at the large amount of money. Money buys you a lot. That's why I call this the $153 million lost opportunity. All right. Peter Kadzis, thank you, as always, for shooting the breeze with me about things political here at the Boston Public Library. Uh, Isaiah Thompson, thank you for coming in and doing this. It was a blast. For the first time, perhaps we can do it again. I sure hope so. Hobo. (laughs) Hobo. (laughs) That was very good. Hobo reporter Isaiah Thompson, Uh thank you for being here. And, of course, thanks to all of you for listening to the latest installment of The Scrum. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, you should do that if you haven't already. You should also leave a review praising this podcast. And thank you, Ed, by the way. Oh, can yeah, I thank I, you, You're very welcome. Yeah, uh, you can find us on various podcatchers as well. You can find all our back episodes online at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. Our producer today, and always, is Jason Tereski. Thank you, Jason. Yes, thanks to Jason. Let's all thank Jason. Uh, What a love fest here. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm